Matthew chapter 8, beginning with verse 1, we began a series entitled Transformed by the Power of Christ, in which we began this study following the study of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is beginning to descend from the mountain on his way to Capernaum. And as he's making his way to Capernaum, we learn in 8.1 of the Gospel according to Matthew that he encounters a leper who says, if you are willing, I know you can heal me. And Jesus said, I am willing, and he heals the leper. Following that, as he enters into the sort of the city limits of Capernaum, he encounters a Roman soldier, a centurion, who begs for his servant to be healed. And Jesus said, I am willing to heal your servant, and I will go with you. And he said, no, you don't need to come with me because I too am a commander, and all I have to say is to say a word, and it is done. And you, Jesus, all you have to do is say a word, and it will be done. I believe that. And Jesus commends his faith. He said, such faith as this I have yet to see in all of Israel. And he says, go, your servant is healed. And as the Roman soldier turns toward home, instantly at that moment, the servant is healed. Jesus then enters into Capernaum, and he makes his way, because it's the Sabbath, into the synagogue. While he's there preaching in the synagogue, he is interrupted, maybe somewhere in the middle or the end, by a man who is demon-possessed, according to another narrative in one of the other Gospels that it records the next thing that happens to Christ. And he casts out the demon of the man in church on the Sabbath in front of everyone. They are marveled the fact that Jesus has cast out this demon, and they notice where he is going, but because it is the Sabbath, everyone must go to their own homes to observe the festivities of the Sabbath. That very evening, we learn, as soon as the Sabbath is over, the townspeople make their way, many, to find Jesus at Simon Peter's home. We learn, though, that when Jesus makes his way from the synagogue into Simon Peter's home, that he is immediately confronted with the reality of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, who more than likely, because of a fever, is close to death. He walks in, lays hand on her, he lifts her up out of her infirmities, and she immediately begins to serve not only Christ, but the disciples. That evening, as the many townspeople gather at the home of Simon Peter, There are many who are healed of many sicknesses, many diseases. Many who are demon-oppressed and even demon-possessed are instantly cured of their demonic affliction. And the crowds become so large that Jesus is persuaded then that they must leave and go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. On their way to there, we learned several Sundays ago, There were two particular guys who came to Christ, and they said, we will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, wait a minute, before you do that, you need to count the cost of what it means to follow me. And he tells them what that cost is going to entail. And they're not up to the the task. And so they do not, I believe, follow Christ at that moment, and they go back to where they came from, and the disciples in Christ then get onto the boat, and they make their way out to the other side, and it is there that we enter into our narrative today, in which we are going to discover that life will have its storms. Now, before we start, I'm going to go to something that I found that I thought was a little cute, and uh, it is a poem about two frogs. That's not really a joke, but it is sort of an interesting little tidbit. It's a short poem about two particular frogs, so let me read it to you. Hanging in there with persistence is the title of the poem. You got it? Hanging in there with persistence. So here we go. Two frogs fell into a deep cream bowl. Only one was an optimistic soul. The other took a gloomy view. I shall drown, he cried, and so will you. 
And so with a last despairing cry, he closed his eyes and said, goodbye, and he drowns. But the other frog with a merry grin said, I can't get out, but I won't give in. I'll swim around till my strength is spent for having tried, I'll die content. Bravely he swam until it would seem his struggles began to churn the cream. On top of the butter at last he hopped, and out of the bowl he happily hopped. The moral is easily found. If you can't get out, keep swimming around. So take that little tidbit with you today, all right? Now, what's, what's wrong with that point? Let's take the first frog, who was not very optimistic at all, decided to take the pessimistic view, didn't put any effort forward at all, and just gave in and drowned. Was that a good thing to do? No. So we can all understand the moral of that. Don't give up. Persist. Keep going on. But the second frog, I think, also has a problem in this little poem in that the frog, while he didn't give up, had a, an optimistic view, kept swimming around until it turned into butter and he hopped out. Now, what's wrong with that? He saved himself. He worked and he worked and he worked, and by his own effort and his own strength, he worked that, that cream into a butter, and he was able then to hop and to remove himself. Now, there's a problem with that when it comes to salvation, because the Bible says that there's a way that is right into man, but that way leads to death. We know that Paul said in Ephesians that salvation is by grace through faith, in that it is not of your own doing, but it is a gift of God. We understand and we know, most of us here today, that we cannot, in our own work, in our own effort, save ourselves. So therefore, because of our condition called sin, we must then turn to a Savior, someone outside of ourselves, to transcend our disease called sin. And based upon our turning to Him by faith, we put our faith and trust in Him. He transcends our sin and He transforms our lives by the power of Christ. So in salvation, we look to someone greater than ourselves to do for us what we ourselves cannot do, and his name is Jesus. But what we fail to understand is, now as a disciple of Christ, whom we had to turn to Jesus to save us when we couldn't save ourselves, that now all of a sudden, we're in this life, we're in this world, to now make it on our own after salvation. And there is nothing more than the truth in that. Because Jesus says that we must continue to humble ourselves, to rely upon him, and to put our trust in him. Because our lives are going to experience, at some form, fashion, or another, some sort of trial, some tribulation, some kind of storm. For these disciples that we're about to study this morning were followers of Christ. And yet, in following Christ, they experienced a storm. I don't know what your storm is today, but more than likely, either you have been through one and you're just out of one, you're in the middle of one, or guess what? You're headed toward one. So turn to your neighbor and say, that's not really good news today. You either have just come out of one, you're in one, or you're headed to one. Now, I'm not sure what your circumstance or situation is, but just because you're a disciple of Christ, a Christ follower, you have dedicated and committed your life to him, and you are saved, does not mean that you now, in Christ, are going to enjoy a life of prosperity, health, and wealth. It's not reality. Because the life that Christ called us to live as a disciple is, is a journey that takes us to a cross. 
It's a journey that, that we're going to have to deny ourselves. And we're going to have to take up the cross and follow Christ. And Christ himself was on a journey that led to a cross in which he was to die for the sins that he did not commit, but sins that we committed, so that through faith in him we might be redeemed or saved. And as a disciple of Christ, there are going to be times in your life that he is going to lead you into a storm. I know that's hard to believe. But let's take a look at the text this morning and let's, let's understand basically eight things that I want us to learn in this text. When faced with a life storm, first of all, we need to recognize his guidance. We must always recognize his guidance. Notice the text all the way back to verse 18. That's really where this starts because verse 18 to verse 23, there's an interruption. And we notice in verse 18 it says, now. Now, following the interruption that took place and all the healings, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he noticed by perceiving, he perceived that the crowd was around him. They were preventing him from declaring his message and preventing him from accomplishing his mission. He was involved in a lot of wonderful ministry, but as we saw two weeks ago, that the ministry is not the reason why Christ came. He didn't come simply to heal people of their sickness and to free them from demonic oppression and suppression. He came with a message on a mission to save the world and to declare himself as the Messiah. And Jesus recognized that the ministry was taking precedence over the mission and the message. And he had to put a stop to it. And so he told his disciples, notice, he gave orders to them. Now don't underestimate that. He gave orders to them. This is a command. He ordered them. Who is the head of your life? Christ. Whose orders are you to receive and whose orders are you to follow? The orders of Christ. Christ is the head of your life. He should be the head of your marriage. He should be the head of your family. And he certainly is the head of his church. And he is the one that orders us. He commands us. And we must listen. We must hear and understand what he's saying in order to obey him. So he orders his disciples, notice, to go over to the other side. In other words, to move from where they are to go where he intends for them to be. To move from where they are to go where he intends for them to be. They could not stay where they were and learn this lesson that Christ wanted them to learn. They could not stay where they were in order to see their faith grow in him. You cannot stay where you are today and grow if you don't go to where he wants you to go. He must lead you, and he is leading you from where you are to where he wants you to be, because in that journey, in that process, you are going to learn something about your faith so that your faith can grow. And he is leading them from where they are to where he wants them to be. And I want you to understand that this passage helps us to see that Christ is leading them at this present moment. Yes, unbeknownst to them, they're headed toward a storm. And yet Christ is leading them into the storm. There are going to be times in your life where he intentionally, purposefully is going to lead you into difficulty. He's going to lead you into trial. He's going to lead you into testings so that through that your faith might grow. And he has a school that he wants to conduct and a lesson that he wants to teach for his disciples 
on the Sea of Galilee. And he is intentionally, I believe, because he is a sovereign God who knows yesterday, today, and tomorrow, all at the same time, is leading them intentionally, purposely toward this storm in order to teach them how to put their faith and their trust in him. Why are you going through the difficulties that you go through? Why do you experience the trials that you're experiencing? Why are there the troubles that you're going through today? It's because he possibly, not always, but possibly is leading you toward those troubles, toward those difficulties, in order to grow your faith. He was leading them. Notice not only should we recognize his guidance, but secondly, we must reveal total and unrestricted obedience. We must reflect total obedience. Notice in verse 23, and after he had encountered this interruption on the way to the sea and in the boat with the disciples, remember the two would-be disciples interrupted his journey and they said, we'll follow you anywhere you want to go. And he said, well then take up the cross and follow me. And they said, no, the cost is too much. And so they left. After that, notice what happens. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat. And when he, Jesus, got into the boat. That's interesting. Jesus is leading his disciples into the boat. He himself takes the initiative. He is leading them. He shows them how, when, and where to go. I mean, step where I step. Go where I go. This is the when, this is the where, and this is the how. And they're following him. Sounds very simplistic, doesn't it? But when he's leading us, he will step by step show us when to step, where to step, and what he is leading us to. And he, Christ, got into the boat. Notice it says his disciples followed him. They traveled closely behind them. These are the 12 that he has selected, that he has called the 12 disciples, not the Wannabe are the would-be disciples, but the 12 who had received a call from him, they have surrendered their all. They have committed to him the leadership and the lordship of their lives. They have been willing to, to, to pay whatever cost, whatever sacrifice is involved. Remember, they left their nets and they left their reputation and they left their, their finances. They left everything to follow Christ. These 12 disciples followed. This word followed is an interesting word. It means to follow after. It means to travel behind. They were closely on the heels are the footsteps of Christ. And wherever he stepped, they were willing to step. But notice they followed whom? Him. They followed Christ. When you're in the midst of a storm, a difficulty, a trouble, a trial, or a difficulty in your life, whom should you follow? Christ. Don't follow anything or anyone else. Follow Jesus. Look to him to show you the when, the where, and the how. And don't you dare move from where you are until he reveals those three things to you. Stay put. Learn from him and watch from him exactly the where, the when, and the how. And be completely and totally obedient to him. And in the midst of the storm, the danger is that we have a tendency to want to grab the bull by the horns or grab the steering wheel ourselves and to steer our own lives, to dictate and determine our own outcome, to go where we want to go or to go in a place where we think it's less dangerous. And we have a tendency not to, to wait on him to show us where, what, and when to move. But do not move unless 
he shows you where. And when he does, unquestioned, complete, unrestricted, 100% obedience in following Jesus. That's what the disciples do. So when faced with a life storm, recognize his guidance. Reflect then total obedience. Number three, remember his proximity. Never forget that Christ is with you in the midst of your storm. Notice the text, verse 24. And behold, whenever you see in Scripture, in any of the Gospels, where there's a narrative, and in the writing they say, and behold, that means pay attention. Something spectacular, something out of the ordinary is about to happen. And I think something out of the ordinary is about to happen, but I think also this is something unexpected for the disciples. For the disciples had no idea. They didn't have a clue about where they were headed and what was going to happen once they got there. You ever felt like that? You're following closely behind the heels of Jesus, stepping where he tells you to step, and you're going where he calls you to go, but you're not really sure where it's leading? It's okay. He knows where he's leading you to, and he knows where you're headed. And he knows what's going in front of you. And he knows the obstacles and the challenges and the barriers and all those things that are there. Just trust him. And notice it said, and behold, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, there arose a great storm on the sea. There arose a great storm on the sea. Without warning, all of a sudden, there was a great storm. Now, these guys, if you remember, uh, Simon... And Andrew and James and John were career fishermen. They had a fish and chips business. And they were expert fishermen. They had grown up on the sea. Their fathers were fishermen. They had spent their entire lives on the sea. They knew exactly what could happen on the sea when they were out there fishing. They could, they could read the elements and they could read. You know, they didn't have these, these weather guys, you know. Turn to channel 12 or 10 or 4 or 5. Or maybe if you've got an app on your phone to find out what the weather's going to be. You know, I have a mother-in-law that I can call her any time and ask her what the weather's going to be in Wichita. I mean, she, she knows exactly what the weather's going to be probably in the whole U.S. But we have a tendency to want to know what the weather is going to be like. Well, they didn't have those kind of apps on their phones. They didn't have the, the news. But they learned to read the signs. And it's not unusual during this particular time for a wind to come unexpectedly over and then down below and create a storm. So they understood how that might be a possibility. But this was a storm that was different than any storm they had ever been in. These guys had heard since they were kids of sometimes there were storms out in the Sea of Galilee in which people not only risked their lives, but people died. And so they were very careful and very cautious as to when they went out to fish and to catch their livelihood to sell and to support their family. But now they're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and here's this incredible storm. This is not just a little storm. This is a storm. And the word that is used here to describe storm is a word in which we sometimes see in the New Testament for the word earthquake. It's sort of an earthquake. And, and when I, how many of you felt some of the earthquakes that we've had in Wichita lately? Remember not a couple of months ago I was in the office and the longest one seemed like it was about 60 seconds or so. And I, could, I thought maybe some big truck was going by the church. Sometimes that kind of causes a rattle, but no, it was an earthquake. And the word earthquake here is sometimes often used in this word, and this is the word that is used, meaning it, they were being rattled. And, and to me, that conveys this thought of their whole faith is being rattled. I mean, they're out of control, and they're, 
preoccupied and worried and they, they, they can't, you know, there's nothing they can do. And so they're just being tossed and they're being shaken by the waves and by the wind that's there. And they're being rattled like an earthquake. Notice so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. The waves were so tall that they were larger than the vessel that they were in. So much so that as the waves began to hit the ship or the boat they were in, they were coming over onto the boat and weighing down the boat, and they were literally afraid they were going to die. Maybe the vessel was beginning to fill with water. I don't know if you've ever seen the Discovery Channel, those guys that do the dangerous catches out there. Have you ever seen any of that? Those guys are insane. But it, it may have been something like that, and they're going through these waves, and the waves are coming over, and they're literally hanging on to ropes and things on the boat as the waves are crashing against the boat, and they are then afraid for their lives. But notice, I think it's interesting, Matthew records in the last part of verse 24, he simply says, but he, Jesus, was asleep. Jesus was asleep. I mean, here the disciples are above board, and they're holding on for dear life. And the storm unexpectedly all of a sudden came from nowhere, and they literally have concluded they're going to die. They're holding on for dear life. And Matthew just kind of throws that out of there, and Jesus was asleep. I mean, why would Jesus be asleep? Well, it's safe to conclude that he had a long evening just before that. I mean, he had, he had preached this long message up on the Mount of, you know, on, on the Mount up there, the Sermon on the Mount. Came down, came into Capernaum, went and taught in the synagogue as well, healed a demon-possessed guy, had several healings on the way, healed all night long. And, and, and he's tired. You know, sometimes in ministry, you get worn out. And people were pulling on him and pulling on him to the point he was physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted. And he was down below, according to another narrative, he was down below, down below deck. And he was sleeping on a cushion. He was asleep during the storm. Now, how hard would it be to be asleep during a storm of this magnitude? But he doesn't have a care in the world. He is asleep. Why? He's the son of God. There's no reason for him to be afraid. There's no reason for him to be awake. But he's asleep. You know, I can see the disciples on the boat hanging on for dear life, concluding that they're going to die. And the whole time they're up there, they have forgotten the proximity of Jesus. Where is he? He's with them in the storm on the boat. I don't know what you're facing or what you will face in life, but no matter what you face today or tomorrow or any time of your life, Christ is with you. You know, I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again because it's a great illustration. We often have a tendency, I think, to sort of encourage people by saying there's a light at the end of the tunnel, Right? Light at the end of the tunnel. Just make it through this dark moment in your life because there will be light at the end of the tunnel. Well, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And if his light is in us because we possess his presence through the Holy Spirit, we don't have to wait for his light at the end of the tunnel. He is with us in the darkness. And as the light, he shines that light unto our path in the midst of the darkness. We don't have to wait for a light at the end of the tunnel. We have the light with us in the darkness, in the difficulty, in the storm. 
You don't have to look and wonder and question, are you with me? For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. The psalmist understood that his Savior, his God was with him. And when we have Christ, he is with us. So no matter what you face, no matter what comes your way, never forget that he is with you. I think sometimes we have a tendency to take our eyes off of him and put them on the circumstances or on the conditions or on the situation, and we fail to recognize and realize that he is with us, that he's present. So remember his proximity. Number four, request divine intervention. Notice in the text, somebody remembers Jesus is on board. He may be down below and below deck, maybe asleep. They probably don't even know what he's doing. But someone remembers Jesus is on board. And it says, verse 25, they, the 12 disciples, realized Jesus is on board, and they went. They moved from where they were and went to where he was. And it says, and they woke him. He was asleep. They had to wake him up. And I can imagine, they said, don't you know what's going on? I mean, I can't believe you're sleeping through this. Have you ever done that to him? Hey, Jesus, aren't you aware of what's going on? I'm going through all this, and, 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 and sometimes I think you're asleep. Sometimes I think you're unaware. Sometimes I think you're unconcerned. But the reality is he's not unaware, and he's not unconcerned, but he is there with us. And they went and they said, hey, Jesus, we want you to save us, Lord. They speak. To the Lord, and they say, Lord, save us. That's exactly what it says in the original language. It says, Lord first, and then save us. English gets a little bit backward. And I think that's important because they call him Lord first. Why would they call him Lord first? Because we know that you're sovereign. We know that you're in control. We know that you have all authority. And as the sovereign, authoritative Lord, we are looking to you to save us. Save us, Lord. Save us. Rescue us. Get this out of this situation. They are requesting divine intervention. I don't know about you, but that's probably one of the things that I don't have to encourage you to do. Because there's nothing that drives us to our knees any quicker and more often than a difficulty, a trial, or a circumstance, or a situation that we know we can't wiggle our way out of. And, and of all the, four, all the eight points we have today in this message, this is probably the one that I think we do the most. Yet in our request, I wonder if we recognize and realize that he is really Lord over all. And yet we must request. And he said, you have not because you, come on, you have not because you, ask not. So we must request. And even though he's present with us in the midst of the storm, I think it's important for us to request, to ask, to seek, and to look to him for divine intervention. Then number five, we need to then resist all presuppositions. Because the tendency that we have in the storm is to presume certain things that are going to happen. We imagine something as reality, but guess what? Our imaginations don't make it real, do they? 
Fear begins to well up, and we begin to imagine all the possibilities or all the outcomes or all these, these things that might happen, and we begin to see things as real that are imagined, and as a result of that, that causes us to be afraid. That's what the disciples did. They said, save us, Lord. We are perishing. Now, before we get to the word perishing, I, I want to just quickly note the word we. It's a personal pronoun. Why is that important? They're saying, save me. <laughs> now, we know in the narrative, uh, in the other accounts of what happens here, that there are other people who get in other boats, and they're following along as well. Uh, unfortunately, there were some of the people who were able to get into boats, and those boats were able to follow. And probably on the boat, too, there were some others to whom the vessel belonged who were going to navigate once they got to the other side and navigate it back out to where they came from. So there were other men other than disciples in Christ on board. But when they come and they ask for salvation, they ask for release and relief, they're saying, save, save us. And I wonder if they were really all that concerned with anyone else other than themselves. I don't know the answer to that. But I think there's, there's a quick point that I want to make, just sort of extra icing on the cake. I wonder how unconcerned we are about others around us because we're focused so much on our own problems and our own difficulties. I, I can't tell you, you know, and I, and I don't want to say this, I'll say it anyway. Sometimes, you, you know, even as a pastor, you get a little bit discouraged or distraught or whatever, woe is me, not a real big thing. And then you go to the hospital and you see somebody else who really has some issues. I can't tell you, as you walk out, you go, wow, things could be a lot worse. But we have a tendency, I think, to focus and to look in the mirror and think of only ourselves rather than to be focused on others. Save us. <laughs> I'm not concerned about the other guys, <laughs> but I'm concerned about me. But notice, we are perishing. We're dying. We're dying. We're, we're about to give up physical life. Is that true? Were they dying? Or was that with a, a perceived reality based upon an examination of the conditions and they drew a false conclusion that wasn't really real at all and based upon that, that imagined reality, based upon the conditions that they saw, they automatically assumed that their imagination was real and they thought they were going to die. But wait a minute, Jesus was on board, so were they really going to die? Absolutely not. Yet Satan came and he caused them to imagine something that wasn't real. They examined the facts and the conditions and made an assumption, a presupposition that they were going to die. And Christ saying, no, you're not going to die. I am here. And I'm convinced that when we're in the midst of a storm, a difficulty, a trial, or hardship, we imagine these realities that are really a part of our imagination. And we conclude, based upon our own false perceptions, that these things are real and they weaken our faith. But in reality, they are not real. And Satan plays, I think, many times with our imaginations and the possibilities and these presuppositions that we conclude to be reality, but they're fake. And we lack faith. So resist when you're in the midst of difficulty, these, these imaginations and these presuppositions. 
I don't care what the facts are. I don't care what the conditions might be or what the doctor says. They are not God. He is. He alone is God. Number six, we need to reinforce our faith. I need to reinforce my faith. Notice verse 26, and he, Jesus, said to them. I don't know about you, but I scratched my head and I just kind of thought about it for a minute. I said, wait a minute, these guys, they are they have imagined that they're going to die. They believe they're going to die. They believe the storm is going to sink their ship and they can't swim and they're going to die. And Jesus, rather than standing up and attending to the storm and saving them, is now going to hold class. What's up with that? Do it now. You follow what I'm saying? I'm drowning. I want you to do it now. And Jesus says to them, hey, boys, not right now. I'm going to hold class. I've got something that I want to teach you. I've got a lesson that I'm going to, 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 to lay out there because you need this. Now, the boat is, I mean, it's, they believe they're going to die. And he says, wait a minute. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Why don't you have more courage? Where are your convictions? Where is your trust? Where is your belief? Oh, you of little reliance. Oh, you of little trust. Oh, you of little faith. You should have a stronger faith in that than what you're exhibiting. I think sometimes he says that to us. When we imagined that we're going to die... And our faith, because it's not what it needs to be, we run to him and say we're going to die. And he says, no, be of good courage. Rely on me. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. Look to me. And so we must reinforce our faith in the midst of these storms of life because we don't need to be afraid. We should not worry. Because we know that he is Lord, and he is Lord of our lives, he is Lord of our circumstance, and he can transcend whatever circumstance, whatever difficulty, whatever hardship we're going through, and as we rely upon him and put our trust in him and our faith in him, he can overcome. He can. For then we must rest in his timing, which is number seven. Once we then reinforce our faith, we have to rest in his timing. Because he has a timing that he's going to prevail. And sometimes we want our timetable, not his timetable. But notice his timing, verse 26. Then, after class was over, he rose to his feet. He got up. And I believe he went on board, went on deck. And notice it said, and he rebuked the winds and the waves. He rebuked them. You find that odd, the word rebuke? I do. He rebuked them. It's a word in which he's, he's showing his discontent and his disfavor. He rebuked the winds and the waves. Why would he rebuke something that we think might be natural? Because it's not natural. I believe the winds and the waves were caused because of a supernatural activity of the enemy seeking to intimidate the disciples and to prevent Christ from accomplishing his mission and his purpose. And Jesus got aboard, and he recognized who was behind the winds and the waves, and he rebuked them. 
Sometimes, I think. Sometimes, I think. Not all the time. Those things that come against us to intimidate us may not be coming from him, from the Lord. And the enemy can use intimidating factors to cause us to worry, to stress, to be over-preoccupied about things that might possibly happen, imagined on our part. And Jesus, when he stands up, we allow him to rule and to reign in our lives, can rebuke, notice what happens, and there was a great calm. These guys were experts, fishermen. And so when he stands and he rebukes the wind, it is instant. I mean, it, wasn't, it didn't dis- dissipate. It was instant. It was immediate. There was a stopping of the wind and a calming of the waves. And I believe that the Sea of Galilee was like glass. It was just still. It was perfectly calm just upon his word and his command. He rebuked it and it stopped. Jesus' timing now is going to play out in that he is going to then determine enough is enough. And he will at some point rebuke and stop the trial and the test because after we have learned the lesson and after we have grown, he will come in and he will remove whatever it is that's causing the fear. Because we must finally then realize that he is a sovereign God. That's the purpose of this. He wanted them to realize that he was in fact sovereign. Notice the last verse in verse 27. And the men marveled. The men marveled. You know, why men? I mean, it was the disciples. Why, why men here? Why didn't I say, and the disciples marveled? He says men. Well, there was, there was more than just the disciples. I mean, there was the men on the ship. There were the 12 disciples. There were the others in the boat. We don't know who he's referencing as men. But I think there's a contrast here between the master and the men. Because the men were powerless, but the master powerful. We are powerless, but he is powerful. I can do all things through Christ. Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. We as humans, we as mankind are powerless, but he as the Lord, as the master, as the Messiah is all powerful. He is sovereign. And when they see this happen, they are amazed and they say, what sort of man is this? I think something is lost in the translation here, but from what country does this guy come from? Is it from Oklahoma? Well, we know that's not true. From Texas? No, he must be from Kansas. Right? I should have got a stronger amen than that. He must be from Kansas. No. Where'd he come from? They marveled because they recognized that he's not human. That he must have come from somewhere else. That even the winds and the waves obey him. That word obey means they listen and they follow. When he speaks, they listen and they follow. That should be what is said of us. We listen and we follow. Some of you know this hymn. 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When darkness veils his lonely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When you're in the midst of the storm, where do you stand? On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand.